Welcome, everybody, to the Examine Life podcast. My name is Kei. This is a podcast where we de deconstruct some of life's thorniest questions in a philosophical and pragmatic way so that you can live a more intentional, productive, and joyful life. Today's guest is Scott Haber, and our question is, what does healthy masculinity look like? What's up, Scott? Good to be here, Kay. I love the questions you're asking. I'm excited to jump in. So before, before we jump in, I had asked you the last time we met, tell us the story of, uh, of Scott Haber in a series of chapters. Like what would the spine of your book uh, look like? Yeah. Your book of it, life. And I'm certain that, you know, the writing of the story will be different depending on who the publisher is. And so um, as it stands today, I think there was the the first chapter, which was really finding out what I enjoyed and how to come to myself and find out what I intrinsically enjoyed. And so that was moving away from pre-med and a doctor's path into a serial entrepreneur and biomedical engineer making medical devices and finding the enjoyment through blending science and business. I think the next phase was really coming into myself, how I can find enjoyment that wasn't dictated based on the external world or achievements or gold stars, which looked like a lot of studying of mindfulness, nature-based mindfulness, and eventually going on a scholarship funded by David Bonderman to travel to non-Western cultures with no responsibility besides seeing different stories of people. I'd say, yeah, after that, um, the final phase, which I would know more so is how can I feel most deeply everything that arises as the path to joy, freedom, and love that I wanted? How can I teach that to others as part of the intimacy business or life that they want to create? Beautiful. Say that again. How do I feel? Yeah. How can I feel everything that's present as the most authentic path to the joy, freedom, and love that I want? The joy, freedom, and love. Free, feel everything that needs to be felt. I think that a lot of our listeners are already to, already listening to this and saying, wait a minute, what does this mumbo jumbo mean? You know, <laughs> I will warn you. I will warn you, Scott. We are our listeners are very heady, very cerebral, very secular, very solutions oriented. If you're familiar with an Enneagram, they're Enneagram threes. Uh, mostly we're going to talk about, uh, about what that, what that means, but, um, actually, so let's, let's talk about it now. If I'm a skeptic, I'm a hard charging biomedical, uh, bio, uh, what is it? Medical device, uh, science person like you sure. are in yeah. chapter one. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? Me. How what? would you, uh, how would you and, explain it to me? And the, what is applied to the, um, feeling, yeah. The joy, love, and um, I can't paraphrase it, but uh, it what would you just describe? And feel free to repeat it again, because I sure. do want that to sit with yeah. myself. Obviously, you've said it twice, and and I've still not it internalized is. it. And so I wanted to sit with our listeners. So actually say that again, and then explain to it in uh, more layperson's terms. Yeah, that feeling, everything that I'm presently feeling is the path towards the freedom, joy, and love that I want. So I think what I mean by that in a more practical and pragmatic sort of frame here is that we often depend on the external world to feel a certain way of what's the easiest way to get quick hits of dopamine or validation if I do good at my job, if I have a good workout, if I have a sugary snack, if my lover likes me which are ways to feel good, but they're dependent on the world outside of us to create the way we want to feel inside of us. And mm -hmm. most often we're being dependent on the world outside of us to feel a certain way because we don't like the way we feel inside of us. So it's mm -hmm. rather than feel the way that we feel inside of us, what's the easiest hit of good feelings that I can get outside mm -hmm. of me? And that might feel good for a little bit, but it's not an authentic, it's not resilient. It's not based on you authentically being with what you're feeling and what is. And so I found the more I can feel everything and let it know it has a home, the more I find that's always the experience I've been looking for that in 
my sadness is, is joy and my grief is the beauty and the preciousness of life and my fear is a lot of love. And if I'm going everywhere outside of me to look for that, to escape what feels bad, I'll never actually get enduringly the experiences I'm looking for. Wow. Beautifully, beautifully, beautifully said. And I'll, I'll admit that if you had said this to me, uh, even a year ago, I would have still felt confused. Uh, I, I think I, I can hear words. But I can't, to use your, to, to, to be meta or to be direct, I can't embody or I can't actually feel the words that I'm hearing, right? They're just words on a piece of paper to me. But I will say as someone who just stuffed, you know, half a bar of dark chocolate in his mouth it, in anticipation of this podcast, who was a heavy, heavy drinker for all of adulthood, 28 years. The question that I have actually sat with personally when I, I've basically not stopped, but cut my drinking by like 95%. And the question that I always ask myself when I feel that urge, when I feel that unsettledness, that frustration is what am I unwilling to feel at this moment? And I think that what I've realized to maybe act as the translator to our listeners, to some is of it? the things that you've said, is that there was this, this nagging uneasiness yes. with myself. My old uh, former teacher, spiritual teacher, coach, Andrew Taggart, he it called is. it dissatisfaction. There yeah. was a kind of a, a, an enduring basic dissatisfaction. And to, to kind of, triangulate what you said, a lot of that dissatisfaction has always been papered over in my own life yes, with dope, with quick dopamine hits, yeah. chocolate, um, uh, salt, coffee. Twitter, yeah. coffee, sex, yeah. what, you name it, right? Drugs, alcohol, um, weed, you know, the list goes on yeah. and on and on and on. And sometimes they're even very healthy things like reading a productivity book or yes, which are yes, seemingly healthy things. And so I'd love to ask you how that like central essence of dissatisfaction, the thing that we're yeah. numbing away or that we're unwilling to feel. Yeah. The super deep Where question. Where does that come from? Yeah. It's a great, great question. And I appreciate you sharing all your sort of tactic strategies because I know them all very well too. You know, I thought that I was, and I was, but like really doing the work because my days were spent in meditation and walking in the forest. I like, no, look, I'm sitting with myself. So I must not be avoiding anything. And I didn't realize it was just the same thing happening at a different level of how can I use these practices to create flow and spaciousness so I don't have to feel things that trigger me or that feel uneaseful mm -hmm. or dissatisfying. And, you know, there are different levels of health to it, but any version of escaping yourself is ultimately will map to addiction and unhealthfulness. Mm -hmm. So, And to, to translate so. for folks, you're saying that you can be an avid meditator, you can be deep on a spiritual path and still be escaping using meditation, let's keep it very simple, yeah. to escape that feeling of dissatisfaction. Yeah, I think John Kabat-Zinn, who you know, is one of the pioneers of Western mindfulness, he's an MD, started mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR, called it a prison of peace, which is like mm -hmm. anytime something bad comes up, why don't you just go to your breath or go to the present moment to not feel what feels bad, which is very much like, why don't you just go to the bar of chocolate or go to the TV to not feel what feels bad. It might be a more mm. nuanced and contemplative way to do it, but it's still in essence doing it. Yeah. That's, is that a critique? Uh, for those who aren't familiar, John Kabat-Zinn is like the OG of Western yeah. meditation, I think. All right. Um, is that a, a known, you, you don't have to, if it's your critique, sure. But is that a is known critique of mindfulness in, in, in circles? Like that's not an, I'm unfamiliar with 
I, I know spiritual by, bypass, but I'm unfamiliar with critiques of meditation in that in that vein. Yeah, I think it's on the fringe, and I don't think everybody's doing it. But the question is, you know, meditation can be a path deeply to ourselves and wholeness in what we're looking for, of realizing truly who we are, and are we looking at it to feel and inquire most deeply to what's actually presently alive, or are we using it to how do I get space from this thing that bothers me and not actually have to feel it? And so I don't know if I'd call it a critique, but there are different mm -hmm. use cases of it. Thank you for clarifying that. God, yeah. this, this like Eve, when meditation is causing you problems, then, then we know, <laughs> we know that, uh, we know we're in, in dangerous waters. Can I share with you, Scott, something that has really helped me and maybe it will help frame some of the things we're going to talk about. We haven't, we're not even in the question yet, but <laughs> this is beautiful. The, I recently was reading, um, I've been reading a lot of Pema Chodron, uh, mm -hmm. when things fall apart is, mm -hmm. um, there, there was a loss in our family and that has been a, an anchor in kind of a sea of just feeling a lot. Mm -hmm. And there's one of the things she describes, it's just, it's, it's a, a lesson of, of Buddhism. I, I think I usually butcher a lot of the semantics and Eastern philosophy, but she called it, she mentions the eight worldly dharmas mm -hmm. and it's, um, Humans seek to avoid, uh, to, they seek pleasure and they look to avoid pain. Yes, yes. They seek fame and they seek to avoid um, uh, criticism. Pray, yes. They seek praise and they, they want to avoid like shame or something like that. Yes, yes. And then the last pair is they look, they seek gains. They want to gain things and they yes, hate yes. losing things. Yes, yes. Now on the quote unquote, negative side on, of the ledger, right? Criticism, loss, um, pain. I suspect that this is my interpretation of it. I'd love to hear your thought. I, I suspect that for a long time, I believe that what I'll call maybe negative feelings, probably not the right way, but I think you know what I mean. The goal was to run away of, and avoid negative feelings yeah. as much as possible. And then on the, on the flip side of it to double down, triple down, quintuple down, 10 X to use productivity bro speak on the gains, all the positive sides. Now, my understanding is that the way, the way, the way she would describe it is that life is all, is all of these things at the same time, right? you're constantly gaining something and losing something. And to really experience life, to feel life in the mo most authentic way, as you described it is the ability to exist maybe at peace, that's my addition, yes, amidst yes. the positive feelings and the negative feelings. Yeah. Is that, how does that vibe with the kind of how you see the world, your teachings, yes, your, yes. your, your worldview? Yeah, there's a few elements in there. So I want to pull two of them apart. One of like, is your worldview to be at peace with it all? And second, uh, avoiding negative feelings and sort of is that just part of humanly nature and what does that mean? Which kind of gets mm -hmm. back to the first question of the root of dissatisfaction. Well, um, wow. let's Go do nuts. The, yeah, <laughs> let's do the first part. I think the way I understand it just for what works for me is to be able to welcome, welcome it all, to deeply embrace and feel it all without clinging to or pushing away any of it which is the same sort of basic philosophy of meditation with thoughts. And it's how can we do that also with our feelings, just like children who are going to go through, like, you know, your children are going to go through a whole range of emotion from temper tantrums in grocery stores to wanting popsicles and crying to being delighted at getting candy. And it's like, how can I love them in all of it and welcome them to be who they are in all of it without needing to change any of it? And to me, that's a, a real good recipe for not only peace, but it's a really effective form of productivity and cultivating flow. Mm -hmm. yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love that. Uh, one thing that I really struck me as a parent, just a very <laughs> thin strand of that is um, when I was growing up and I would cry, my parents would commonly say to me, stop crying. And that when I became a parent, uh, my, I would say to my kid, when they would cry, I would say, stop crying. And my wife would 
Lisa would point out to me, she's like, no, you have to let them feel what they're feeling. You know, telling it's someone just, to stop crying is to tell them to turn off this, this vital part of who they are. Is. I know that many of the listeners will probably very innocuously, like we all want to be parent the right way, but I wonder what you think, you know, what you said made me think of the phrase of a parent telling a kid, stop crying. Is. I wonder what you think about kind of the Yeah, I'm just crying. thinking of all the innocuous, like slightly sinister ways that it's worked into our language and mm-hmm. our gestures, you know. When you ask somebody what's going on, if they're in the midst of sadness, we say, what's wrong? Like oh. something is wrong with their sadness and not just part of the normal human gamut of emotion. Or if mm-hmm. in the normal face, you see people crying, it's like this. Like I need mm-hmm. to cover my tears because I can't be seen in it. So yeah. I think from very early ages, you know, it's totally, sorry, fucking normal. This, yeah, I don't know no, what curse, curse away. It's totally fucking normal to have the whole gamut of emotions. You know, we evolved with feelings for a reason. They tell us about how our body's sensing the world. And, and to learn from young ages that don't throw a temper tantrum, cheer up, don't be sad, you should be happy, actually says a large part of ourselves is not safe to express. Wow. Yeah. Got it. And so the second part, I'm almost uh-huh. forgetting the second part of the question, but you remember yeah. it. <laughs> I think we were talking, you were asking the question, you know, what is the root of pleasure versus pain? Pleasure versus pain says. and this root of this like pervasive sort of chronic ubiquitous dissatisfaction that seems to, that most of us have to a low or not so low level underneath the surface of the hood. Our listeners have it to a high, sur- high, high degree. <laughs> yeah. I've had it for a high degree and conversations like these have lessened it with time. Mm-hmm. And I would say high productivity could be bonded to it often. Uh, <laughs> if I do more, then I will feel better. So let me create, and I'm not sure that's going on for everyone. I just know that in my system or with some clients, yeah. let me do more to hopefully bet on the expectation of future good feels to mm-hmm. get good feelings that I'm missing about and you know, mm-hmm. you can build a whole life. Yeah. Is there a, an exam? obviously not singling people. Is there an example? Like, what does that look like to build a life? Sure. Cause I think of that, like to, um, I call that living, you know, living for tomorrow or the, the, the delayed life plan. Like I rather take happiness tomorrow. And I think it really, it's really powerful in kind of Western and like the, the self-reliant, um, you know, man or person, which is, you know, sacrifice today for better tomorrow, um, delay, delay, delay. What does that look like when you search for that better feeling tomorrow in, and you basically trade today's good feeling for a better tomorrow, like strung that, play that out for us. Yeah. I mean, I think you can sort of see it everywhere where People are in jobs or relationships or livelihoods that feel like they can't be their authentic selves, where they feel estranged from. And it's with this hope of some future reward will come that will make this all worth it because I will have that one moment of joy when my partner does this, when my job rewards me with this, when I have this esteem, which goes back to the start. It's making our good feelings dependent on the world outside of us thinking, you know, once we get to a certain place, then there will be some arrival. That arrival we're looking for is our own self-love. And our own self-love doesn't come from the return and the reward and the pleasure we get from external tasks and early tasks. It doesn't mean those things don't look good or don't feel good, but there is a certain holistic, comprehensive love you can have for yourself that's irrespective on whether things are going bad or good. And so Mm -hmm. it doesn't have you then just seeking and chasing the next promotion, the newest partner, the newest car, the newest house, because like, oh, I actually already feel solid in myself and I don't need those things to feel solid. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that you might not have an authentic desire to get them. It means that you're not locating your own sense of being able to be loved, to receive love and to give love based on having. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, I think that 
We could talk about this forever, but I think this will segue into yeah. our, our question on today's question is what does healthy masculinity look like? Before we dive in, uh, we run coaching cohorts. So if you're looking for peers, like-minded friends, professionals, uh, community members to have these types of conversations, check out radreads.co slash coaching. So what does healthy masculinity look like? And maybe just... um, let me ask you first, why is masculinity an interesting topic for you, Scott? Dude, masculinity feels like how I'm relating to the world. Like how I relate to anything is how I relate to everything. And so my relationships feel like the deepest mirror to my own development and how much I'm able to, how much I love myself and then how much I can love everything else outside of me. And yeah. so masculinity sort of feels like a vector for me of as a man showing up relating to clients to a romantic partner to friends like how can i relate from a place that fosters more love and openness and freedom and i uh, think we often look at that through this sort of constricted box of what's masculinity and what does it mean mm -hmm. to be a healthy man in a modern society and if you what is it what a great question what does it mean to uh, be a healthy man in a modern society. So if you were to rewind the clock and I'm happy to rewind it myself, this, like if you think of yourself as, you know, child, uh, young Scott, ha Scott Haber, you know, pr before you're a teenager, six, seven, eight, nine. And I was interviewing that, that child right now. Like what is, what is masculine? He probably didn't know exactly what masculine they mean, but maybe just, what does it mean to be a man or, um, do you, what, what would, what would that have looked like to a, a child, Scott Haber? What did masculinity look like to you? And if you want to give that some thought, I'm happy to answer it myself. Yeah, a picture comes to mind, which I think we're giving really traditional pictures for like who is most celebrated or the celebrities are most successful. Like that is the trajectory or the map for like what an evolved man looks like. And often mm. that looks like athletes that are really strong and fit and have made a lot of money or like ideas of handsome, strong, you know, movie stars who have this like strength and verge and, and like courage and like suck it up and, you know, wipe off the, the cut on your, your knee. And I think that's sort of the idea that we're giving. Um, it's strength over vulnerability. Yeah. I think I, I would say similar for me definitely i would think kind of movie stars you know i would think i would actually in my answer there would probably be a, a little more aggression in it Maybe. so like almost like a wwf type like that like there to me i think the element of fighting and combat would would be kind of wrapped in the definition of masculinity as a child and, and probably even even today and for me, it's a, it's a, it's it's interesting as well. Being a child of Asian immigrants, there's like masculinity, and there's like what is an Asian male as a sub node of the masculinity question look like. But but to me, culturally, you know, I like it's funny. I the first thing that came to mind was like the Marlboro Man. I'm like Bridget? that. That's masculinity to to K as a child, like smoking a Marlboro Red and Bridget? out in nature. Um, I wonder. Yeah, I want Go to double-click on something you're yeah. saying because I think it's important. I think that there is evolutionarily and biologically the imprint for combat and strength and fighting to be part of masculinity because what it did was keep the tribe or the surrounding people safe. And I think we have a chance for that same still like core disposition and emotional signature to happen, but that doesn't actually cause hurt in other people, which looks like healthy anger. You know, mm. anger tells me what I care about and how it got violated. And when I really allow my anger to move without suppressing it or directing it at other people, I know what I stand for and I know what my boundaries are to keep the things that I care about. Mm. And so that healthy anger, it takes on like the traditional form of like the masculine role to be able to feel hurt and pain and decide what needs to be done to keep the tribe and people itself and then people it loves safe, but without taking that out and harming others. Got it. Yeah. Got it. So is it almost like, um, like healthy anger also means it doesn't mean no 
violence, right? It means violence in the sense, violence maybe like where you're protecting yourself or it means violence when violence is appropriate and is vi it? no violence when violence is inappropriate. I'm, I'm, yeah. Am I paraphrasing correctly or is that a not, too bit of... Not exactly. I think okay. that's an important point that I learned from Daniel Schmachtenberger and how his father raised him. He's really a brilliant thinker. And he used to say, his dad told him, never be the one to throw the first punch. But if someone throws mm -hmm. the first punch, make sure your punch is the last. Um, and yeah, I'm not advocating. <laughs> yeah. I think a That's lot of deep, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You say it's, you're not advocating. You know, there's obviously a situation for it. And more what I'm speaking of is I think a lot of violence happens because people can't feel the way they've been hurt, where they can't feel the way that they've might have let their boundaries get violated. And it's sort of like that emotion that's been controlled starts to control them where mm. it reaches this boiling point in a simmer where the energy of the emotions too much and it needs an outlet and because we don't know how to move it ourselves and just into without directing it someone else we need a place to place it mm. and so we often put it on people and for me like the first answer is when i feel hurt like i get angry i go yell and then see the hurt and the care underneath and then i know the boundary of what do i need to not be hurt in the future what do i need to be able to keep my heart open in love, which often isn't violent at all. It's extremely compassionate. Like, hey, if you're going to yell at me, then I'll walk away. Or if you're going to abuse me, then, you know, I'll take the day off and I'll come see you tomorrow. Yeah. Well, if you think of, I, I want to come back to that, but if you, if you think of masculinity and kind of how it's evolved, so we kind of, you know, we're probably older than you, but you work in the same generation of like the, the actor or the athlete and so on of like masculinity, you know, we were probably growing up in the nineties. Um, and you take masculinity today in 2023, I don't even know how I'd answer this question, but what does, what does masculinity look like today? I know that's a, it's a big question. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I have the answer to that. I know it's evolving yeah. and I know yep. there are more discourses like this where we realize vulnerability is strength sensitivity oh. is power um feeling things is courageous you can lead oh. without stripping down people's autonomy you can lead in a way that actually empowers people more and that's the definition i hope it's going towards i guess i'm curious for you yeah. what do you think in 2023 in masculine is defined as that's um I agree. And I think part of how we gravitated, how our friendship is evolving is because of a, some shared belief of what, you know, worldview of what you just said. I do, you know, I think about maybe if I, and I'm not necessarily, I'm definitely not the right cultural commentator. Uh, but if I look at some of the tropes or narratives of like the media. And again, what does that even mean in 2023? I think there's definitely like a story that like men have forgotten what it's like to be men. They've gotten too soft. They have become too in touch with their emotions. There's kind of like the blurring of genders in, in, in some regards, they too passive. Um, and I, I'll even speak from experience. Like, you know, I think that, you know, if, if I take some of the, some of the, the, the tropes, like I'm a very sensitive Indeed. man. Um, I'm, I'm very willing to share my vulnerability with my wife. Um, you know, I dress very like, you know, what, what would have been called heterosexual, you know, like, mm -hmm. um, no metrosexual, metrosexual, uh, yeah. metrosexual, uh, tw you know, 15 years ago is kind of like the default style for men, mm -hmm. you know, mainstream men. And so, you know, you can take, you can go far as, you know, um, men are wearing, you know, Harry Styles is wearing dress, dresses, Drake is wearing nail polish and like things mm -hmm. like that. I actually went to my wife the other day. I was like, I was wondering what, I wanted to wear nail polish once. What do you think? She's like, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. She's like, who do you think you are? Um, <laughs> but, but I think there is this, I don't know. It's like this, again, I'm, I, I, I hate 
some part of me hates having this conversation because I'm sure a lot of it can be taken misconstrued, but there is like mm -hmm. a feminization. Totally. Of men. If Harry Styles is wearing a dress, mm -hmm. uh, there's some feminization of of men. Again, I, I think that might not, that might be a controversial statement. And it is. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. I think we're in a calibration phase. You know, I don't know Maybe. what's right or wrong, but I think that there was an over calibration to the female, you know, like look at the 50s, 60s, the female is the housewife and she doesn't have purpose or mission and her purpose is to serve the husband and he's the core breadwinner and he can't possibly have vulnerability. And, you know, feminism really burst out of that to realize how fucked up that idea was. And so mm -hmm. I think it's sort of like anything in culture where we swung too much one way and in trying to figure out where is the healthy middle, we're swinging maybe who knows, this is just my idea yeah. of it, but too much the other way, because we're actually trying to ask, okay, there's bit, you know, a woman has both feminine and masculine parts. A male has both masculine and feminine parts, and we've stripped them down of their complementary pole. And so right. we're trying to say, what does it look like to allow and embrace that again for a whole complementary balanced human and some people in figuring out what that means, you know, might have a different definition or might go more in one way than the other, which I think I hear yeah. you speaking to. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think like, I know, again, I'll, I could speak firsthand when I, um, my wife has, you know, like has said to me, she's like, I, I want you to be, um, she's like, I've thought about doing combat sports. It's a hobby. Mm -hmm. She's like, I would love for you to, to do more combat sports because I think, even in my own world, like I've, I've swung too far in her eyes of being a softer, more emotionally regulated person where she, what she sees is like, if we got jumped in a back alley, like would this soft man, you know, yeah. actually defend my honor or defend us yeah. or defend our family. And so it's like an interesting thing to see at the same time, she would not want me to be like, you belong in the kitchen. Yeah. Uh, make my dinner and I'm going to go drink whiskey with yeah. my friends. So it's kind of like, I do think that there is this kind of um, collapsing. And the other thing I want to add, and I don't know where exactly it fits in, it probably is it a is. tangential. Again, I'm, I don't think either of us are cultural commentators in that mm -hmm. regards, but the whole kind of Andrew Tate, you mm -hmm. know, movement of just like, you know, men are the dominant, uh, dominant gender and, yeah you know, fighting and violence and, and all that. It, it does feel like we're at a moment with a lot of whiplash where, you know, maybe I'm on the softer side. I'm moving towards the, you know, I'm using air quotes here, the softer side of masculinity. Andrew Tate's pulling others onto the more aggressive side of masculinity. And Scott Haber is guiding us to the truth. Yeah. I don't know about that part. Um, <laughs> But there's some interesting, I think, false dichotomies in what you're saying that are worth okay. unraveling. First off, on the Andrew Tate thing, you know, we can obviously see that whole movement as a response to the miscalibration. Like, mm, no, yeah. no, don't forget what's important about masculinity. And, you know, in my own experience and own life, being able to feel my feelings fully, nothing about that makes me... Um, not fierce, fiercely loving, you know, fierceness know. is a part of masculinity. I think just looking at sort of traditional heterosexual relationships, women uh -huh. are looking for the fierce ravishing energy of a male. And it's only when I'm not afraid of my anger or when I'm not afraid of my own fear, can I really fully step into this sort of core loving fierceness. But that isn't, you know, on the far right, this compensation for let me always be fierce because I don't want to show that I actually have softness. Mm -hmm. To me, those actually go hand in hand where there's nothing that really sounds soft about my anger when I'm releasing my anger. And if somebody mm -hmm. were violating my physical or my lover's physical needs, there'd be nothing soft about my response. And in allowing the fierceness of my anger to move, I'm able to come back to the most loving response that isn't afraid of the anger, the fear, the shame, or the emotional consequences for how others will respond. 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's super fierce, like if somebody's violating physical needs, and sometimes that's super loving. And those often no. aren't separate. Can you give um can you give a more specific example like example of that? Yeah. Because I could see you, you you're combining this fierceness with yeah. I, I I might be perf- I might be hearing you wrong, but you're combining this fierceness that can be manifested with anger. Vision. And simultaneously with love yeah i got a, i got a good okay. a good example i'm gonna paint like three different ways this can go about okay. you know i've had times where i felt in an abusive relationship where i was the one receiving toxicity or abuse on one end of the spectrum if i'm not feeling the anger then i'm actually not feeling the part of me that feels violated and that i got hurt so mm-hmm. i don't know where to set a boundary so I stay in shut down because I'm afraid of the anger and I stay taking abuse. Got it. This looks like. So let's, let me pause you. Yeah. So when your anger, like the person being mm-hmm. abused, so mm-hmm. you're basically un, you're repressing your anger because you're almost scared of, scared you're of repressing it or you don't want to feel that it. That is the device to keep you and others safe mm-hmm. in a healthy way. And so that's not even if I'm being abused, that's if I'm watching other people that I care about being abused too. I feel a sense of identity. And a sense of investment to their safety. You know, my anger tells me something not right is happening that I care about. And if I don't feel the anger, I don't actually know what I need to do to protect the care. Mm -hmm. So on one end, that looks like sort of emasculated, which is Mm -hmm. let us stay in abuse because we're not, we're not connected to the protector part. On the other end, the Andrew Tate end, it's. I don't know what Andrew Tate does, but I have the sense of when our anger isn't clean and flowing and we're hyper-masculinized of everything fierce, it's not actually mindful how the anger is getting released. So it's just like, I'm being violated. Fuck you, man. How dare you do that at yeah. the littlest thing? So it's like, like not step on th- your shoes or something. Totally. Yeah. Step on your shoes and not feel the way that you feel threatened fully by that. So you're just in reaction to take the threat on someone else. Got it. Wow. It's like, let's let's, re, let's recap those. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. So the first one is I'm being abused or I'm seeing seeing abuse and I'm not even able to connect to my anger. Is it because I'm just like subconsciously, like I'm numbing it or I'm just avoiding it, disassociating from in it? In some way, I'm, it usually goes down to like we were talking about with children, we learned anger wasn't okay or was unsafe. Just hold it. Don't feel it, right? Yeah. Um, and so the abuse would continue because you don't even, you're unable to see that it's problematic or you're unable to see the, to set a boundary. You're like, not no, feeling you're, the thing that wants to tell you where the boundary is. Okay. Can you be a little more specific on what, like, I hear yeah. what you're saying, but I don't think yeah. I fully understand it. Yeah. When I really feel angry about something. When I let myself release that anger, it almost always turns into first, it's like, no, I won't stand for this as I'm feeling the anger. And that anger turns into some deep sadness or hurt. And in mm-hmm. really feeling the sadness or hurt, I know then of if I don't want to feel this anymore, or if I don't want to be put in a, a situation where I'm unnecessarily subjected to this, what do I need to do to know it being subjected to this? What actions can I take to keep myself safe? Yeah. And so anger really tells us this really vulnerable part of ourselves uh, that got hurt. And the more I allow the anger to clarify and tell me what got hurt and what I'm actually not okay with, the more the boundaries are just natural. Got if, it. Got if you're yelling at me and I'm not feeling how I feel angry, but I'm just like shut down of like this feels bad, I don't actually know what really like, feels bad to me and what I'm not okay with. The anger yeah. is the start of telling me what I'm not okay with. Got it. Got it. And then the anger and then the example you gave could be sadness or shame. Shame probably a very powerful. I'm thinking about, you know, I have friends when they see their older siblings as adults, they, the, the older siblings kind of, reg- everyone regresses to childhood and they start like verbally belittling the younger sibling 
And so I could see right there that, that you could just shut it down, make a joke, or just move on, like pretend mm -hmm. like it never happened. But the anger, then, if you can experience that anger, like, fuck, they're, they're making fun of me again. I'm a 40-year-old person. Yeah. This, this sucks. And then it might be a gateway to sh sadness, like, um, I and can't believe nothing, my older sibling disrespects This is a really that. important distinction that you're helping me articulate more clearly. There's nothing wrong with feeling the sadness or shame. It's not like we're trying to draw a boundary yep. to not feel bad. It's more like when I notice my siblings yelling at me and I feel fully down to what's happening, oh, that makes me feel sad and bad, then I get to see clearly, oh, I'm not okay with being belittled or abused. Completely. This is how it actually authentically makes me feel. There's nothing wrong with the feeling, but I get to feel fully what's happening. And it's not like this kink of like, oh, you know, well, they do that all the time and it's not me or it's like, no, just fuck that dude. It's my yeah. oh, This is how I feel. And this is what I'm not okay with. And it's so, not that I'm not okay with the feeling. It's more, I don't want to subject myself to something that makes yeah. me feel abused or belittled. Which then leads to the potential boundary. Like that person could feel totally. the anger and then turn to their sibling. It's like, Hey, I know that we've done this for decades, but it really hurts me when you tease me this way as an adult. Totally. Like, yeah, and, yep. you know, the boundary being, if you're going to continue to tease me this way, what I'm going to do is walk away for an hour and he'll call you back later. What I'm going to do is ask you to stop teasing me. And if you can't, then, you know, I'm going to go get lunch and we can talk another time, yep. which then, sig yeah. which is the most compassionate and loving thing you can do for the person because it signals to them, Hey, this behavior isn't okay with me. And so I cannot resent you and stay in connection and love. This is what I need. Yeah. And yeah. this is what I'll wow. do if that happens. Yeah. Whereas most people, at least that I know, would just deflect, avoid, seethe in private later, and then continue that, you know, numb is with it? like, have a drink to make it, you know, go away and then re re repeat the cycle. And then feel some sort of resentment at the person yeah. as it continues uh, to happen. Yeah. Or have some sort of yeah. story, self-fulfilling prophecy that it's always going to happen because the feeling is still happening in you consistently. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for breaking that down so scientifically. It, yeah. It's super helpful. So that was one one end. Mm -hmm. So you you ignore the feeling, uh, um, and then the resentment, and you don't it set just, the boundary. The other one is the oh yeah, someone steps on your shoe. Yeah. at a bar <laughs> even and you just like punch him in the face so it's yeah. like un, un, unhinged anger and unhinged yeah. aggression was there anything we, more to add on that one yeah i think it's important it's actually the same thing but a different behavioral compensation they both don't know how to fully feel the anger so one doesn't feel the anger and allows it to happen because the anger is too much of a threat so they don't set the boundary the other mm. doesn't feel the anger and because it's too threatening to feel how they got hurt to their masculinity or how they feel unsafe, rather than fully feel the hurt, they're just like, it's your fucking problem. Fuck you. Don't do this again. Cause I don't want to feel this. And so mm -hmm. it's like hurt people, hurt people. When yep. you can't fully feel the hurt, if Ooh, you're not going to push it down you just want to blame it on the other person of, oh, I can't feel the hurt myself. So it's your problem. So I Ooh, need to take out some action to let you know how wrong you are. Which really just perpetuates, I mean, that's uh, the whole war mentality, right? That's yeah. why we've been called yeah. in war for how many years? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Hurt people, hurt people. Yeah. I have said that to my daughter a few times and I wonder, is like, is that, is that like the right lesson? Is like the, is that the right aphorism to, it might be like almost too heavy, but hey, let, let's not go on you can, that. A quick note <laughs> on that. You can tell yeah. how much somebody's able how much they felt through their pain and how much able they are to feel hurt based on how much they talk poorly to people, which is another way to lobby mm. the hurt that they haven't felt in place of other people. Cool. So gossiping effectively or talking mm -hmm. shit, which is like, I feel this thing and it's, I'm feeling too much of it. So I need a place to place it because I can't feel it and diffuse it myself. So let me just validate that I feel this way by talking bad about the other person. Wow. I never, I always was aware of my, you know, when I would talk shit about other people, 
So now it's just in my own head sometimes. Now, just, now it's really in my own head. But it is, I never thought of it as that. It's that, like I have nowhere. Can you say that again? It's like you have nowhere to put that that is feeling. It, is it? And so you have to like lash out, but you won't lash out directly to the person that hurt is you. Is so it, you lash out indirectly. You hurt them in another, like indirectly. Said. Yeah, totally. You're looking for a place to diffuse and dissipate and displace the emotion because you haven't been able to fully feel it, which is what this what takes the charge away. So the easiest thing is just, uh, you know, speak to other people to validate the experience of it. Wow. Yeah. All right. So we got to both, you're, you're going to paint three extremes. So we have the, you know, the person that goes inward and just represses, you've got the Andrew Tate lasher and what's the, you said there was a third path. Yeah. Middle way. It's like the first person continues getting abused. The second person responds to abuse with abuse. The third person feels it fully and says, I'm not willing to stand for abuse. So here's what I'm going to do if it continues to happen. Really? So is that effectively standing up, standing up for themselves verbally? Sure. I mean, that could, to me, it looks like usually setting a boundary, which is like, Hey, Kay, if you're going to constantly tell me I suck, like I'm not willing to be in this relationship. And uh, you notice that's not just be like, okay, let me just take that into flack. Nor is that responding with her to being like, well, you think I suck? No, you suck that, you know, like getting, yeah. and it's more like, whoa, I feel how much that hurts. Cause I felt the anger underneath the anger is hurt. But I feel how much that hurts. And I don't want to be in relationships that feel it hurts so much. Here's my boundary. That's the easiest way um, to explain it. Underneath the anger is the hurt. And when you feel authentically the hurt, you know what you need to keep yourself safe. Wow. Which oftentimes is a boundary. And so I could see that in, I mean, obviously it makes a, I think about relationships that I've had or that I've observed that are healthy and unhealthy, like the unhealthy ones. And I guess I never thought about it through this lens, but it seems like a lot of the unhealthy ones, the boundaries are just completely out of whack emotional boundaries um which kills all the passion yeah because if you're staying around people that you just have to push down all your emotions it's not you're just pushing down you know you're pushing down everything you care about passion goes when the anger doesn't flow because the anger tells us what we care about and if we're pushing down what we care about then we can connect to our passion damn so and I want to be got, clear because yeah. I could see people yeah. taking this as like, great, I'm going to go yell at my partner. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the recommendation. The recommendation is go find a healthy expression of your anger that isn't outletting on anyone or anything else. And then mm-hmm. see what, what conversation or what action has been taken. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, so you, you work with men Did at you? an individual level, at a group level, in a group setting as well. If you were to kind of tease out, you know, either what we discussed or I would say it's like where people are the most stuck mm-hmm. when it comes to this kind of issue of healthy masculinity, mm-hmm. what have you observed kind of empirically? I mean, because we've been yeah. talking a lot of like mm-hmm. examples. I would say it's not knowing how to walk in range motions and how to feel it. And, and I know mm-hmm. that's just circling in what we're saying, yep. but if you don't actually know how to feel it, you don't know how to show up authentically as yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so how does that feeling? Cause I think many people would say, well, oh, I'll, you know, I'll go meditate or I'll go, you know, I'm trying to think of, um, and maybe, maybe, maybe you have one, but like, let's, let's say an example might be you start a company with a, a friend and your business partner screws you over. Like Can either, you? yeah, screws you over somehow. Maybe it's like, so this would be extreme. They steal money from you. But so there's this range of emotions, right? Anger being probably an evident one. Shame, like I can't believe can uh, this has happened to me. Sadness, like I trusted this person. I love this person. And... 
maybe like to be very specific, like maybe the, uh, in this example, the, the person like sees their partner's phone open and they like, they look at the phone and they see like this web of lies, like in one, like in one email. I think this is where I would, again, I would have gotten stuck here six Mm -hmm. months ago to experience the full range of emotions in that moment. You're reading this email that shows how your good friend slash co-founder betrayed you. What is experiencing the full range of emotions actually look like? I know we're maybe circling the wagons here a bit. Yeah, I think this is important. I think a lot of people, when we talk about feeling our feelings, they think it's brooding in it, ruminating, talking about it, inventing, you know, a crying. lot. Crying is a really good form yep. of release. Um, yep. A lot of where I've learned and I'm sure concepts I pulled from or regurgitated is from Joe Hudson, you know, a mutual <laughs> sort of person we know. And he was once, I remember. Future podcast guest. Great. <laughs> I remember he was once talking about, he's like, you know, I was sitting in a boardroom and I was saying, I'm so angry. And the guy looked at me, he said, you're not angry. You're just talking about how you're angry to not feel it. And so Mm. to me, there's a different range of like what feeling sadness looks like, which often is crying, feeling anger. It looks like what feeling shame, feeling fear is. And I know I'm actually feeling it if there is some form of release happening in my system. And that release mm. usually does come through for me crying where it's like a five mm-hmm. maximum 10 minute sob. And then the whole situation mm-hmm. feels clear and light actually. Yeah. You wow. know, if you're getting mentally stuck on the situation or if every time it comes up, you feel very tired or if you feel mm-hmm. the urge to just go to your phone or eat a sugary snack, or if you feel mm-hmm. this urgency to speak and lash out at the person. Yeah. You are still in the emotional experience. Yeah. But I do, I still feel like, again, maybe I'm, I'm trying to analyze something that's very felt using words and maybe that's where I'm getting stuck. I, I feel like there's obviously there's crying and then with anger, there's yelling. My, my wife did, um, Hoffman Institute, which is, uh, inner child work for those who aren't familiar. So how some of your childhood patterns, pains, wounds show up in adulthood. And she said that the, she gave me like some of the exercise. She told me some of the exercise they do is like in one of them, they, um, they like have you like take a baseball bat and like to a pillow. And I, I don't think the pillow is a person, but it's like represents the way a person had hurt you. So you're like literally like beating the shit out of this pillow with a baseball bat. It is. There's writing like an angry letter to a someone who has hurt you. I'll tell you a story that that I think I don't think I've ever said on this podcast, but we were, and I want to I'll plant the seed because like what is the release of anger? What does the release of emotion look like? We were in a marriage therapy session and we were talking about how Kay, one of my coping mechanisms is I just emotionally shut down. So I'm the repressor and like the emotional repressor in many ways. And and, you know, he was, the coach was egging me. He's like, well, what are you really afraid of? What are you like? I, and I would say, I fear irrelevance. I fear people not like, um, seeing me. I fear like I don't matter. And, and he's like, okay, tell me you matter. Say, say to me, I fucking matter. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I told the, we're four, like my wife and I, and the t- coaching couple on zoom. So I, I said, I fucking matter. And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, say, he's like, he's like, is anyone home? No, no one's home. He's like, I want you to yell. I fucking matter. I couldn't do it. I couldn't yell. I fucking matter. And finally, I'm like, all right, I'm just going to surrender. I'm just going to yell. I yelled it as loud as I could. And I immediately burst into tears. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I have never seen myself cry that way. Yeah. My wife has never, my wife has never seen me. She's only seen me cry once when I lost a friend. Mm -hmm. Um, my wife's never seen me cry that way. And so I guess to some extent, I, maybe I am answering the question because, but I know that, that people who have not never felt the range of the emotions, it's, it, is. it is, it can be hard to describe to them what that feels like. Cause you're using words to describe mm-hmm. feelings. So yeah, anyway, I'll stop there. 
I think it's just important to point out, I've been learning this really potently, like up to this episode. Yeah. When anger starts flowing, a lot of grief is going to happen. I'm like, holy shit, I haven't said I fucking matter. So I've, and in hiding from that anger that I don't matter, I've allowed myself to stay in relevance. Or holy shit, mm-hmm. I haven't allowed my anger when I've gotten abused or, and so I've allowed myself to stay there. And there's a huge grieving process that can happen after that feels like the natural sort of completion of it. Mm-hmm. You're like, wow, I've been attracting people who abuse me because that's what I thought I was worth. And there's a huge grief to allow in that of like, wow, this is the love that I thought I was worth or I deserved. This was the relevance that I thought that I held. So you're grieving that old, the the end of that kind of old story of yourself? Yeah. You know, how much the emotions have been held in Mm. and how much they've held you in place of the thing that you actually didn't want. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And so to go back, is there a way, mm-hmm. is there a way to, ex- you know, if someone's listening to this and they're like, I want to be more connected to my feelings. I mm-hmm. want to, um, learn how to regulate my emotions. Is there, you actually had left me that WhatsApp message with some great, like mm-hmm. little exercises. Mm-hmm. Um, how does one take that first step? And remember you, you are talking, I know you, I know, you know, the type, but you're talking to some very brainy, brainy repressor, emotional repressors uh, on the other end of this podcast. Yeah. It's different for everyone. And it's also totally natural and intuitive because as children, we all, you know, came into the world learning emotions. So I would say the first step is when I feel a certain sense of urgency or like a scripted automatic thing is happening. When I get that moment of awareness of, Ooh, I'm rushing towards something and I don't know why to be able to slow down, breathe into it, see what, where I can feel tension in my body and ask the question, what if this experience had a home? What if I didn't need to pull away from these sensations and to see what arises from that space? For Mm -hmm. me, I work with different emotions differently, but all kind of similarly, which is how could I just love them all? Mm-hmm. You know, sadness has like a, a noise to it that allows for tears. Anger has also a noise, but a verbal, audible expression of the anger. Now, um, fear, I really try and just love as deeply as I can. But I think starting to familiarize with what's the tension of feeling and what if this had a home? And what, in it, what if I didn't have to leave this physiologic tension that I'm feeling right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh. I do think about, I've been, um, observing when I, you know, being an online personality, it's like, it's just a crazy world out there with a lot of, uh, envy and a lot of posturing and a lot of aggression, so to speak, and, and ego. And I can get very envious of people who I think are more successful than me or further down the path than me, or they're doing things better than me. And it's funny, I've been sitting with that. It can be envy, can be like, I, I gossip about them in my own head, you know, <laughs> start telling stories. And what I've tried to do is to just basically, instead of doing that, just observe it and then drop into my body and, and just feel whatever I'm feeling. And I don't know if I'm doing it right, but a lot of times, you know, it's like, oh, I feel all this kind of pinch in my abdomen or I feel Mm -hmm. this like sensation in my neck, my shoulders, my traps, Mm -hmm. and just kind of breathing through it, observing it. And then something happens or I just kind of like, it dissolves, right? You're like, oh, that was, because again, I think normally I would have been tempted to just like Mm -hmm. go have a piece of chocolate. Like, oh, this person pissed me off. I'm jealous of this person. Mm -hmm. Let me go eat a potato chip. And then just like the salt, just like makes just numbs me for that second and i can kind of move on to the next thing it just is that akin like is it i think that's really beautiful and i think you can even layer on something there which is like the somatic tension that we have if we realize those are usually some emotional experience manifesting in our body telling us how our body is experiencing the world 
So they really mm-hmm. are these like intelligent data points that want to let us know mm-hmm. things. You know, start, you know, I'll start sometimes by feeling the constriction or the heaviness or the tightness. And as I'm feeling it and like bringing my awareness to couple to it, like my total awareness is in the sensation, I'll just start to ask it questions. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what do you want me to know? Or like in your instance, if that was me, I would start to ask like, what about them feels like more? What about them makes, makes you feel like not enough? Like what if I was enough or how, how do you think you're not enough in this moment? Mm-hmm. And starting then to learn from those data points of what they want you to know and how you can love whatever answer comes up as a pathway to deeply feel it and release it. Yeah. I think it's beautiful. And, and I, I thank you for that because I think like you're way ahead on, on this kind of journey. I'm, you know, a tourist, but I've, I've, I've been to a few spots. Um, and then our listeners, I think some of them are obviously on, on all the spectrum. I say many of them are probably like, I get it, but I've never experienced it truly. And so I I think you, I, I, I really thank you for really like explaining it in, in such a kind of clear, but also honest way. I feel like we veered off a lot on the actual topic of healthy masculinity, but is there something as it relates to healthy masculinity that is important that you don't think we've covered? I think that there's an idea that the health, like in dating, this is common in like the lexicon of reclaiming masculinity of like male should make the choice. Like, tell me where we're going to dinner. I want you to lead. My understanding of this is the male leads to help others lead themselves. So it's mm-hmm. not that I'm making the choices, but I am empowering others to make more choice. It's mm-hmm. I am leading you to be able to lead yourself. Anything else feels like it's stripping down people's autonomy. It's like, mm-hmm. rather than telling, leading and telling us like what we should do today, I can lean and say, Hey, I'm really curious and wanting to know what you want to do today. And like mm-hmm. coming from that same leadership, confident energy that actually empowers more sovereignty and autonomy. There's a mm-hmm. really good quote by a great philosopher, Forrest Landry. Love is that which empowers more choice. Wow. Their love is that that empowers more choice. And so is this in the context of men being quote unquote told to be, to take more control and, or is that what that this kind of, you said you're yeah. saying in dating circles. You know, I think I hear this. I'm very unfamiliar. <laughs> yeah. One thing I don't have an opinion on is what's going on in dating circles these days. I think, you know, in a lot of the dating circles or the conscious circles where people are starting to play with relationships and intimacy and Tantra and the like core energies archetypically of what is masculine and feminine, it's like, male, take the lead. I want you to tell me where to go. And it's like, I want to take the lead to allow you to lead yourself. Mm, okay. Yeah. Got it. And how, like, if I'm thinking of something very basic, but like, oh, where are we going to go eat dinner? Is that, is that kind of a healthy transfer of agency without, cause you know, like, is that, I don't know, is that even the right example of like, you know, a couple deciding on where to go? Or is that too, too watered down? You know, I think it's not about the external example. It's about the internal situation uh, of it, which is if I'm escaping my indecisiveness to have you pick, that's wow. a good sign of what people are talking about taking the lead. But if I'm actually like really clear that, oh, I know you aren't like are escaping cool. your indecisiveness and aren't able to make these decisions. And I want you to be able to have your own intrinsic compass. Ooh, then like, how can I compassionately nice. help you be there? So it's not as, that's, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's very, I mean, I can speak from experience is that in our marriage, I'm very decisive and my wife is very indecisive and we both know the accompanying stories where I probably have more egoic tendencies, dominant tendencies, and she has more low, you know, low confidence. And so, you know, I've actually said like, like. Well, if you want me to decide, just tell me to decide, you know, something like that. That's like, you know, 
but what I'm what I'm doing in that case is stomping over her agency and just being like there is a discomfort there and I'm just going to overpower it just to make that discomfort go away for you because then it goes away for me precisely yeah where (laughs) instead it's like how can I elevate you without patronizing you yeah while still knowing that you know like I am supportive and I am decided you know like there's like a Wow. Okay. The most loving thing, you know, you named it perfectly where if the wife or the partner's indecisive, it's usually we're not okay with it. Cause it's like, what would I have to feel if you didn't know? And then I'd have to feel indecisive and like, we don't know what we're doing and I don't want to feel that. And if mm-hmm. you're able and okay with not, we don't know and I'm totally That's okay. Right. And I can love you and not knowing and that you don't know and you can take the space to, for the first time in probably a while not need to be pushed through that discomfort or forced straight out of it like okay here's the answer and it's yeah, totally uh, okay like to me that's a really strong like yeah. healthy mouse yeah beautiful beautiful scott man we went uh what a conversation i could we could talk for <laughs> hours so likewise really um I, I really, these are beautiful conversations. These are not conversations that I have frequently, yes. if if at all. And so I'm really grateful to have that conversation, to have the conversation with you selfishly, to have it. And also that we can, you know, share this gift with uh, with our community and our listeners. So really, thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be able to share and conversing with you always just pulls out new layers of things that I am also in appreciation to be able to think you feel. Awesome. Where can our listeners go learn more about you, connect with you? Yeah, mostly on Instagram, Twitter too, not as active. I've got, there's a website, but it's old and it will tell you about my current offerings or what I'm doing. Um, That's to, that's in process and to be coming, but I would say Instagram or Twitter are good places to connect. Awesome. And we'll put your, we'll put links to all those in the show notes. Scott, thank you so much. Yeah, it's a pleasure, man.